Okay, we're talking about the seven deadly sins. And um, some people attribute this to a pope in the 6th century named Gregory the Great. He listed out these seven vices, beginning with pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, which, I mean, I find slightly ironic that a guy whose name was Gregory the Great came up with a list of sins that began with pride. It's a funny thing, though, um, as, as we've sort of been getting into this series, there are other pastors that have been kind of watching this or, you know, just noticing what we're doing. They've reached out, and they've been like, wow, um, how's this series going? Like, are people kind of, is it kind of depressing? Is attendance down? And, um, and I've just, I've had to say, like, well, we're, we've only done one of the sins so far, lust, and um, attendance actually went up, but we'll track it from there. But the direction of this entire series, and we've, we've tried to say this, and we're going to continue to make sure this is front and center. This is not a series about sin. It's about freedom. And so today we're going to talk about how God leads us into freedom from envy, which traces to the Latin word invidia, invidia, to look upon with resentment. Envy is wanting someone else's life, not just what they have, but who they are, to the point of resenting even hating them. That's the poison of envy. And we're going to come back to this later, but people may brag about some of the other vices. Envy, nobody brags about it. Joseph Epstein um, has written a pretty well-known book on envy. He says, giving in to sloth is rather pleasant. Giving in to loss of temper entails a release that is not without its small delights. And lust, greed, pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for, a lo- for quite a long time. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all. Draining all joy from you from its very first moment. And then this sentence, I think we have this. Um, we have all felt envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. Don't you wish you were a little more vivid with the language there at the end? But that's what envy does. It just cuts the contentment right out of your life. In a sense, envy is almost the reversal of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Remember, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Envy rejoices at those who mourn and mourns at those who have cause or reason to be joyful. Here's what the writer of Proverbs says about envy. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots The bones. It is a poison that gets all the way into the marrow of your bones. And I was thinking about it this week, how something so destructive can also be quite useful. Envy is this fuel that drives our economy. It's the perfect marketing strategy. Every time we scroll through an ad about a newer phone or a latest trend in fashion, this is just one little example. Um, When I was in, I don't know, middle school, Uh, Back in the 90s, there was a time, high school, let me be clear, this is a high school, there was a time when everybody wore relaxed fit jeans, okay? Does anyone else remember the relaxed fit jean craze and how wonderfully comfortable they were and it just was like such a gift? Well, then a few years later, everything changed and some people who were sort of the trendsetters started wearing these bootcut jeans and so those of us who had envy, we started wearing Bootcut jeans, and then a few years after that, the style changed once again, and slim fit became the new direction, and that one really kind of carried us for quite a bit of time, 
But then after a few years, those were too baggy, and so skinny became the new slim, and we envied everybody that was wearing the saran wrap around their legs, and so we all did that. But then somewhere along the way, people got tired, and I mean, they're just, they're hot, and it's not easy, it's just not a good idea to wear the skinny jeans all the time, and so the trendsetters and the worship leaders started wearing these (laughs) high-waisted, baggy dad jeans again, right? And it's just come full circle. Now, I know that's kind of a petty example, but, but what lies behind it is not so much that I want more stuff, it's that we want to be like someone else. And it turns out envy around clothing is nothing new. In fact, one of the earliest stories we have in the Old Testament is about a family that ends up being torn apart by envy around a silly piece of clothing. So if you have a Bible, um, let's turn to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. It's the story of a young man named Joseph and his brothers. And we're going to pick up in Genesis 37, verse 2. Here's what we read. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Okay, problem number one. (laughs) And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, bad report is kind of fancy language for um, Joseph being a tattletale, right? And obviously, his brothers are not big fans of this. So verse 3, now Israel, or Jacob, this is Joseph's dad, the brother's dad, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. So here's where the family dynamics kick in. In the eyes of his father, Joseph was the favorite. Like when the other brothers came in, into the house from outside, their father sort of noticed for a moment and may have waved and, and said hello, sort of an empty greeting, but then he just went back to watching, you know, Matlock or whatever he was doing. But when Joseph walked into the house, his father's eyes lit up. Joseph was the one that Jacob told stories about and bragged to his friends about and knew all of the names of Joseph's teachers and went to all of his games and in a hundred different ways, which sometimes parents were not too attentive to, but our kids have this laser radar for Jacob radiated favoritism for Joseph. And then one day the tipping point comes when Jacob gave his son this lavishly royal coat. This was a Gucci blazer. Hand-fashioned, hand-tailored, and Jacob, you know, bought it from his son at Neiman's. He got clothes for the other boys at Walmart. (laughs) But what made this coat such a big deal is not that it's not that it was prettier. It's not that it was more expensive than the other boys' clothes. In that day, clothes were an expression of status, of hierarchy. What this coat communicated is that here's Joseph and here's the rest of his brothers. But as we read on, it's not just the coat or the father's favoritism that draws attention, Joseph is actually pretty physically impressive. And so we read later in Genesis that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Right? He's got the Tom Brady thing going on. And, you know, not Tom Brady at the Combine, if you've ever seen that picture from 20 years ago, but the other Tom Brady, seven Super Bowls. He gets all the attention. Now, what follows in this story is just the evolution of envy. And so we pick up in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So notice it says, when his brothers saw how his father loved him, 
In, in the scriptures, envy is often associated with the eyes. It's seeing things in a certain way. Envy is a sin that begins with the eyes. In fact, nine times in this text, there's a reference to seeing, sight, vision. But here's the thing. Joseph seems a little naive to everything that's going on, to all this tension, because one day Joseph has a dream, and you'd think he would know. This is probably the kind of dream that I ought to keep to myself. Verse 5 says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Isn't that a great dream? Don't you think his brothers were fired up about this dream? Verse 8. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So you notice how the hatred's beginning to build. Three times already in the text, the writer uses that word hate to describe the, the fallout of envy. Now fast forward a little bit into verse 17. And one day his brothers are all out in the field working. Joseph, by the way, is back in the house when his dad sends him on an errand to go and fetch the brothers. And we read this in verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. Which, do you see it? I mean, it's just spiraled out of control. It's, it's disproportionate. It's not logical. Like, yeah, he's a tattletale, and he doesn't know when to shut his mouth, and he keeps flaunting his coat, but they could have just yelled at him or, I don't know, kind of thrown something at him or given him a wedgie. But no, they're talking about killing him. Okay, that's, that's what envy does. It just spirals out of control. So when Joseph came to his brothers, this is verse 23, they stripped him of his robe. Notice he's still wearing that fancy coat out in the fields. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now, you may know the story. They end up selling their brother to slave traders who um, carry him off and sell him to this foreign nation called Egypt. And God's not done with Joseph. And it's an incredible story of redemption. But we see how the power of envy just escalating to the point where Brother can turn against brother. By the way, it's not the first time this has happened in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at that story next week. But this undercurrent through the opening pages of Scripture, the poison of envy and how it just spirals out of control. So let's pause here to talk about the source of envy in our lives. Let's talk about comparison. We all know in some measure what it's like to compare ourselves to somebody whom we think is smarter or taller, or prettier, or richer, or funnier, or, you know, successful-er. You know, you see these people, and maybe you, maybe you even see them in the church. And it's like, man, their marriage seems perfect, and their kids are always just perfectly behaved and perfectly dressed like little, you know, Peter Millar models or something. And then I look at my kids, and they've got the shoes on the wrong feet, or they're mismatched, and I didn't brush their hair before we went to church this morning because mom's out of town. And then I, like, find oatmeal on my shirt, you know, halfway through the sermon, and I just feel smaller, right? It's the curse of comparison. Alexandra Samuel 
has written about this. She's a, an, an editorialist for the Wall Street Journal, and she's been researching uh, the impact of social media on envy, how it has never been easier uh, to track the success of other people's lives than ever before in history. And so every time you get on Instagram, it's like they all seem to take better vacations and they seem to have better interior decorators and better foodie experiences and they all have better teeth and they've all got more accomplished kids. And it's like the impact is so clear. Social media is just fueling envy. And yet we can't seem to stay away. And we're seeing the impact in particular on the next generation and just this chronic anxiety and body image issues. And so part of this is just defining reality and this willingness to be, um, even if it feels uncomfortably honest, to take an inventory of our lives. So just out of curiosity, um, how many people here really struggle with envy? Just raise your hands. Okay, good. So we can move on to the next deadly sin. Let's talk about sloth for the rest of the service. Aren't you glad we live in a part of the world and in a community in particular where by the sheer grace of God, people just never seem to compare themselves with other people. No one around here is worried about keeping up or getting ahead or competing or looking better or managing their image. It is just a tranquil sea of modesty and deep contentment. It's interesting that of all the seven deadly sins, envy is the one that we are most ashamed of. You know, we've said with some of the other devices, there are still in our day pockets of culture where people almost kind of brag about it. Not envy. Not envy. No one ever gloats about envy. And I'll tell you, this has been the one that has been like a bullseye on me. For years, literally what has driven me to get out of bed in the morning and the drive to succeed and to try to achieve and accomplish more has been this envy that I have felt for that, you know, guy who seemed more successful than me or more in shape than me or... Um, a faster runner or a better golfer, although that's pretty much everybody, or, or the guy who preaches better than me or leads better than me or gets asked to speak at more events than me or those people who seem to kind of work a room better than me or my friend who's always willing to say the hard truth even if there's a consequence because he just is not that worried about what other people think and I envy that. You want to know who I mostly envy? It's people who don't struggle with envy. Like their lives are not defined what by what other people think about them and they just seem to live comfortable and poised in their own skin and they're just free from comparison. Again, here's the poison. You, you think about all these other sins. You know, greed may drive you to want what someone else has or to um, make as much money as that guy who's got the, you know, newer, bigger house. But if you envy that guy, it's not just that you want what he has or you want to have more you actually want him to have less. You want bad things to happen to him. That's how dangerous and insidious this can be. It's not just wanting more. It's how do I stack up against my competitor, my rival, okay? The world becomes a competition, hunger games. Somebody gets to win and everybody else has to lose. That's envy. In fact, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is watching as... Envy is beginning to sort of threaten the integrity of the church and one of the early churches that he helped to start. And so he writes a letter to the Corinthians. And I'm grateful here for the insights of John Ortberg. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 would have become, you know, the most well-known, most beautiful words about love 
And he begins by saying, love is patient, love is kind. But then Paul pivots pretty early on to the things that love is not. It's not this. Love does not do that. Anyone remember the first love is not that Paul mentions? It's envy. Why is that? Why does it come first? Because in so many ways, envy is like the opposite of love. One writer puts it like this. A person of love feels enhanced by the well-being of others. A person of envy feels diminished by the well-being of others. When I love someone, when I'm filled, my heart is filled with love, I constantly want to build them up. When I envy someone, I compare myself to them and I actually want them to be torn down. Does that make sense? It's like the opposite of love. So then how do we find freedom? How do we overcome envy? Because I don't want to live. None of us None of us in this place want to live like that, even if it's the air that we breathe on a daily basis around here. If that's normal, I want to be weird. Like imagine if this were a place where kids and students and college students and young adults and grown-ups are beginning to find this freedom from a world that is just chronically obsessed with comparison and envy. And how do I stack up against the competition? So how do you find that freedom? Well, you don't do it by trying really hard not to envy. You don't overcome envy through gritted teeth and just willing ourselves to not be envious. It doesn't work that way. It's never the way of transformation. You can't just tell yourself to stop it. So how do we find freedom? Here's the key. Envy can only be eliminated as it is replaced with the power of love. Envy can only be eliminated when it's replaced with love. When love is beginning to fill up and take root, it's like there's, there's no more room for envy to grow. So you want to defeat envy, you got to replace it with love. So I'll try to illustrate this. Every once in a while, um, Charlie Dunn, a friend of mine, will come and preach here at Highland Park Press. And many of you know Charlie, and he grew up in this church. And a few years ago, Charlie launched... Um, from here to plant a new congregation as part of our family of churches, uh, Grace Lake Highlands, and it's going gangbusters. And we're so thankful for the growth and the flourishing. But every now and then, and I'm, I ask him all the time, but every once in a while he'll say, fine, I'll come back and I'll preach. And uh, so he preaches here on occasion, and a few weeks ago he preached a sermon here. And it was, if you were here, it was an incredible message. Well, afterwards, somebody reached out to me in the church, and they said, man, didn't Charlie knock it out of the park? I mean... And he didn't use a lick of notes, like, how does he do that? And I'm just like, yes and amen. He, I mean, he is so gifted, and he is such a gift to our church. Then someone else reached out and said, wow, that Charlie Dunn is so good. Do you think we could have him preach more? And maybe actually you could go preach more over at Grace Lake Highlands. Now, did, okay, did this stir up any... Envy whatsoever in my heart. I mean, if I were to get as honest and ruthless as possible and just do the inventory, like, is there a shred of envy in that moment? Maybe there is. And if somebody else had called and said, hey, can we maybe just arrange like a long-term trade, you know, you for Charlie? Like, I might have to take that one before the throne of grace. But honestly, honestly, do you know what it mostly feels like in here these days? It's love. It is just this joy and this gratitude and this love for a guy who has become like the closest of friends over the last eight plus years. I mean, we have been through some stuff together. We have suffered together. And to now watch him 
doing what he does and just doing it so well, mostly what it feels like in here is love. And then I'm free. I, to cheer him on and to celebrate his giftedness. He's not, he's not a rival anymore. He's like family. And that changes the game. Now, it wasn't always that easy. And there have been some times when we just had to talk about stuff like this. Envy, rivalry. It's surprising how much pastors kind of have to wrestle through some of this stuff. Like, hey, let's just name it and see if we can be above board about this. And, and mostly let's make it about love and how we care for each other, and how we cheer one another on. We can actually learn, with God's help, to not be rivals, but to love. My old pastor talks about a guy named Jim who was, uh, he was visiting his fourth grade son's class. And when he got there, the teacher was explaining the rules of this game that they were going to play called the balloon stump. And you know, maybe you've seen this where every student in the room ties a balloon to their leg. And the goal, the object of the game is to protect your balloon and to go around and try and stomp and pop every other kid's balloon, right? Which is a very Machiavellian kind of lesson for fourth graders, isn't it? Well, as you can imagine, the whole game lasted like 25 seconds, and it was the biggest, strongest, you know, meanest kid in the room that won. Well, then a somewhat uh, disturbing thing happened. There was another class that came in, and this was a class with um, students with special needs. And they were brought in to play this same game, and the balloons were tied to their legs, and they were taught the, you know, the, the rules. And, and so this guy, Jim, I mean, he stuck around, and he just, he just had a bad feeling about this. Where's this going? But the strangest thing happened. Um, this class clearly understood that the object of the game was to stomp the balloons, but they missed like the Darwinian survival of the fittest part of the rules. And so they just, when the teacher said go, they just kind of went around joyfully, happily helping one another stomp out their balloons. And so one little girl, you know, she kind of held her balloon steady while her buddy came up and stomped on her balloon. And then, you know, he exchanged the favor and he held his balloon so that she could jump up and down on his. And then finally, when the last balloon in the entire room was popped, it's like everybody cheered. Because everybody won. They changed the game. What if we were to change the game? Change the scoreboard. Change the scorecard. Change the rules. I mean, right now, there are all kinds of hot Twitter takes and controversy about the new rules in Major League Baseball. Bigger bases and, you know, uh, the pitch clock and no shifts. And some people are like, no, 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 you cannot do that. Like, we can't change the rules. What if we decided on this team and in this place, we're going to change the rules? Like, it's going to be a new game. And what if we started keeping a different kind of score so that now, now it's about how many people can I serve and how many people can I help this week? And who can I shine a spotlight on when they do something really great, even if it kind of shifts some attention away from me? And how many people who maybe used to feel a little bit like rivals, if I'm totally honest, can I recognize them and praise them for specific things they've done in front of others? Who can I pray for? Someone who might kind of fit in that rival camp. Um, who's a rival that I can actually pray for? And I want to challenge you to do that. To think about a rival, someone whose successes, when, when they get recognized or when their kids get recognized, and, and maybe you don't or your kids don't, like it kind of grates at you. And it can actually keep you up at night. And so this week, what if you were to identify that rival and pray for them to thrive? You, 
You may not feel like you want them to thrive. That's okay. You can't always control how you're feeling, but you can control who you pray for. When I was in grad school, um, my roommate for those three years, uh, we went to college together. We're really good buddies, but it became really clear from like the first class all the way through. I mean, he was just a much better student than I was. And he always got better grades and just got the kind of a little bit more recognition and that whole thing. And, and I was kind of, that was a bit of a struggle for me for a couple years. And I realized along the way, and I think somebody helped me to see this, that instead of being just consumed by this, that I could pray that he would thrive. And after a while, praying for him actually began to change my heart, and we became really good friends, and we are to this day really good friends. I remember another guy who um, was a pastor who had planted a church that was just down the road from where I was pastoring in Atlanta, and... And it began to occur to me that what I was sensing in my heart about this guy was, was envy. And he felt like a rival. And so I started to pray for him and to ask that his ministry and his preaching and his family life, that Thomas would flourish. And I didn't always feel like it, but I chose to pray for him. And it was just the coolest thing how over time it changed my heart and we became, we became really good friends even to this day. Or back when Allie and I were, um, were dating, and there was a little stretch where we took a break and a hiatus for a while, and a friend of mine wanted to ask her out, and I realized he was kind of my rival. And so again, I thought, what if instead of competing, what if I prayed for him, and I did, and I prayed that he would fail. <laughs> and he did, and I got to marry Allie. And he and I are still great friends. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus is doing at the very end of his life? Like the final moments of his life. You know what he's doing? He's praying for his rivals. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was never resentful. He was never jealous of another person's life. He never tasted envy. For Jesus, it was never, how can I get their life? It was, it was always, how can I give my life away for them? And so we come to this table, this communion table. And, you know, what's so amazing about that story in Genesis and what's amazing about this book, there's nothing like this book, in the same way that his brothers envied Joseph, and that envy just turned to hate, and they wanted him dead. And so what did they, they threw him in a hole in the ground. We're told the religious leaders and the chief priests, they saw Jesus, and they watched as he healed and, and how he preached, and he had this authority, and how the crowds were drawn to him, and their envy began to turn into hate, and so they killed their rival. Envy killed Jesus, and then they threw him into a grave. But all that hate and all that envy and the suffering of the cross and the darkness of that grave could not keep love buried in Jesus. Envy has been absorbed. Envy has been defeated. Love rose victorious. And now you and I are invited to receive this love, his love, as we remember his body broken and his blood poured out. For we are no longer, he no longer calls us rivals, but friends. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are and how you gave your life for us. And we pray 
that you would flood our hearts so there would be no room for envy. You would flood our hearts with your love as we break this bread and as we receive this cup. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.